Support for this podcast comes from Stella Artois. This summer, enjoy the life Artois. You can experience it anywhere, from your patio to the tidal basin. All it takes is being present, being there, with the people you love and a cold Stella Artois in hand. Wherever you are, you're never too far from the life Artois. Stella Artois. Please enjoy responsibly. Hello, and thank you for listening to The History of World War II Podcast, Episode 228, an interview with Mary Jo McConaughey about her latest book, The Tango War, the struggle for the hearts, minds, and riches of Latin America during World War II. Even before the first shot of the war was fired, the Axis and the Allies were well aware of the need to control not just the hearts and minds, but also the resources of Latin America. And this fight, like the larger one, had few rules. Residents were captured to exchange for American POWs, and rival spy networks shadowed each other across the South American continent. In fact, it was the oil of Mexico that allowed Hitler to enjoy a head start in terms of resources during the first phase of the war. With the Axis enjoying early victories, the countries of Latin America had to decide whose side they would be on. But they would not be making these decisions on their own. Washington, London, Berlin, and Rome would wage their own war in the Southern Hemisphere, with FDR getting the help of Hollywood and Mickey Mouse. For whomever controlled the South American continent would be favored in the Battle of the Atlantic and in North Africa, which threatened or secured Mussolini's empire, which was, as Churchill described it, the soft underbelly of Europe. And thank you, Mary Jo, very much for being with us tonight. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. So I have to, first of all, I just want to say thank you again for for a different reason. Um, When I was halfway finished reading your book, I realized that you had filled a very large gap for me and probably for other people um, about what was going on in Latin America during World War II. So you just covered a lot of things that we're going to get into, but I just wanted to say thank you because, you know, people like me who, who... study World War II or who find it a fascinating subject. I mean, you're focused on Europe, you're focused on Pearl Harbor, but there are some very important things going on in Latin America that I did not know about. So I just wanted to say thank you and also ask, so how did this book come about and how did you come up with the name The Tango War? I love Latin America. I've worked in Latin America as a reporter for many years And I'd already done a couple of books about Latin America, uh, but in the memoir genre. Mm. And so I wanted to write another, but not about myself. And my father, who was a Navy veteran uh, of World War II, used to tell me snippets of stories uh, about the war, uh, including about uh, Latin America, about Uruguay, about Argentina, about Brazil. And uh, I at one point said, well, let me find out a little bit more about it. Maybe I can write about some aspect of that. But I could not find a single book in English that covered the entire continent, gave me the big picture. So I decided to write the book that I'd want to read and just spent about five years uh, going to Latin America and several other countries and uh, ended up with the Tango War. Now, why the Tango War? Because, as you know, the tango is a universal dance, not just Latin America, and It occurred to me while I was doing the research that one side was always closely following the steps of another, just like in the tango. Thus, the tango war, the struggle for the hearts, minds, and riches of Latin America during World War II, the Axis and the Allies following each other step by step. 
So, uh, yeah, I'm glad you did write that because, again, like you, I couldn't find too many other books. And it just dawned on me while, while I was reading your book and you were answering that question. Reading your book about Latin America during World War II was the equivalent of looking at a map and then turning it upside down like the map of Australia. Everything's still there, but you have this different perspective. And I think that's what I enjoyed most about your book was just seeing it from their point of view and all the things that happened, good and bad, in Latin America uh, during World War II. And we're going to jump into that. So, you, it, s- yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, I was just going to say it was a global war. I, I, every place in the world, I think you'll find, was touched in one way or another. Absolutely. Uh, And again, but um, I think a lot, especially maybe in America and the UK, uh, we have we have a tendency to just focus on um, what we consider to be the major players. But you're absolutely right. And as we're going to see, and certainly for people who read your book there, Latin America had a huge influence on this war. So let's let's jump into this. So I was completely surprised when I read at the beginning of your book that there was what a million plus Germans living in southern Brazil, and they practically had a lock on the air industry in Latin America. Could you tell us how all of this came about? Sure. Well, Germans migrated to Latin America for many years, even in the 19th century. But after World War I, of course, the German economy was in shambles. And so the more or less German colonies that had already existed in the south of Brazil became a lot larger. And Germans migrated much more to Latin America because they already had communities there. They were looking for a new life. They were entrepreneurs. Uh, Business was awful back home. And, of course, the military of Germany was reduced to practically nothing by the terms of the Versailles Treaty, very punishing terms. Mm -hmm. So any young people, young men, who wanted to go into aviation uh, often thought about going somewhere else, and many went to Latin America. The very first uh, 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 passenger airline there, Scata, is the... uh, the the initials of it was in Colombia. It's flying off of an island in the Magdalena River. Uh, That started even before Delta, which which was the oldest operating uh, airline in the United States. And and it flew uh, over the the mountainous uh, country there of Colombia, about which people were very happy because... (laughs) Otherwise, it just took days and days to get anywhere. Right. And the the roads weren't uh, reliable. There were uh, American movies down Argentine Way and flying down to Rio, which made it uh, look as if, uh, gee, everybody was was wealthy and happy and glamorous in Latin America and all flying around. But you get a little bit out of the cities and you'd be caught on ruts anywhere you went. Mm-hmm. So flying was very, very popular if you could afford it. And many of the pilots were German. That Scotta was a German company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and eventually the Italians moved in. Wow. So uh, I, I have to ask, so if the Germans there and the Italians are there, um, how come the United States aren't trying to get into this market? One of the uh, first, um, the, the Germans used aircraft that could land on land. At that time, you know, the famous Pan Am Clippers mm-hmm. would land on water. And so they had a bit of an advantage there. And they were there earlier and some of the sorry, some of the uh, German communities, for instance in Cochabamba in Bolivia started their own airline. Mm. They were serving what was already a kind of network of Germanic towns uh, and uh, commercial hubs. 
it just either was ignored or uh, Pan Am just didn't get down there uh, early enough. Ah, because the Germans, as we know, are very hard workers, very efficient people. And so I imagine, yes, with their industry, they locked this down pretty quick. And like you said, there was a very large population down there. So the 1920s go by, you come to the 1930s, and now we have the Axis powers. And the Axis powers now, because of all of this, have a foothold in Latin America. And I'm sure the local governments appreciate all the industry and the development that the Germans and the Italians, and I'm assuming the Japanese brought them as as well. So I imagine the U.S. government, as we get closer to 1939, and there's a lot of war tension, I imagine the U.S. government probably feels the need to neutralize this major advantage that the Axis uh, powers have in Latin America. But the question is, what are they going to do about it? What can they do about it? I mean, they've got to deal with the Germans and the Italians. How do you get rid of all these uh, very well um, already already existing airline, and I'm sure all the money that flowed, but because of the Germans and the Italians, how is the Americans going to get them out? The Americans didn't know something about that very, very important Colombian airline, which is where they were starting. They wanted to get rid of that one first. Ah. Why? Yeah, Uh, because it was being used for contraband. It was being used uh, to fly spies around. They wanted to get rid of it first. There was something that they didn't know. Juan Tripp, who ran Pan Am, had a secret. He owned it. (laughs) It turns out that he had bought a share of it, but he did not want to make it public. I mean, a huge share, the controlling share. And he did not want to make it public because Colombia had a pretty big chip on its shoulder about America and Americans because earlier in the century, uh, with some shady maneuvers, the United States helped the northern part of Colombia break away, name itself Panama, and the United States built the canal. So Colombia was still pretty upset that the Americans had robbed them of their national territory. They did not want to give up this great airline that was doing well for them. And a lot of the Germans also that worked for the airline, in fact, that worked for a lot of the industries, became uh, pretty involved in civic uh, uh, civic work. A lot of them became citizens. Their kids were going to school there. And uh, there was no reason for the president of Colombia, he felt, to get rid of uh, the, 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 this airline, even though the U.S. military was very upset about it. It was flying within 200 miles of the Panama Canal. So security-wise, yeah. it was a danger. And, and you make a great point in your book, and you give several examples about these people that came over after a generation or two. I mean, they feel like they are Colombians. They feel like they're Argentinians or, or Brazilians. I mean, they, they, have, they have grafted themselves successfully on to these countries, and which is going to make some of the stuff that comes later in the book more shocking. But these people have really immersed themselves into the local culture, and they are just getting on with their lives. And why should they give up? you know, something, they're part of the airlines that they've worked so hard for. Yes, but remember that at that time, Germany did not consider its people, even if they migrated out of Germany, even to the second, third generation, they did not consider them anything but German Mm -hmm. and expected their allegiance to, by that time, to the Reich. Uh, not that's not necessarily the way all the uh, ethnic Germans felt. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, it, it, finally, it did happen that um, the German airline was uh, rooted out of Colombia. The, the uh, Washington put so much pressure on Juan Trip and gave him a lot of financial benefits. Mm-hmm. 
that uh, one day in a very, very uh, uh, cinematic scene, uh, they had smuggled in all kinds of pilots and administrators, had them talking in code or communicating in code. And from one day to the next, the airline was cleansed, as the American ambassador said, they needed to be deloused. Wow. Uh, cleansed of, of its Germans, and uh, Colombians and Americans were um, uh, put in place of the Germans. But that only got rid of the German airlines. The Italian airlines were even worse because they were flying directly from Brazil right into the heart of the Reich by going from Rome to Berlin. Wow. Okay, so so now so the Germans have been weeded out, and and you and you do a great job in your book. I mean, the United States sneaks down a whole bunch of U.S. pilots. They fire the Germans en masse, bring these guys in, and I think we we all know that uh, the Germans are going to be very upset, but it's going to get worse for them because after war comes, I think the Germans are going to be put into camps maybe after Pearl Harbor. So it only, it only gets worse for these people who are just trying to, to work and, and live their lives. I'm sure some of them, I guess, maybe were spies, but not all of them. But that's just, I guess, the game you play as far as international politics. But like you said, now it's time for the U.S. government, and I guess with Britain's help, to go after the Italians. I think it's almost the contrary. That is, it was time for Britain to go after the Italians. Ah. Now, yeah, the U.S. thought it was doing it. In fact, the U.S. ambassador took credit for it, <laughs> but it was all in the hands of the Brits. Mm-hmm. Why? Because the Italian pilots were suspected of spotting for the Germans as spotting the uh, British ships mm-hmm. and, uh, uh, and putting them at risk. And so the United States, for all it tried through diplomacy, could not get rid of the Italian airline called Lati, the one that more or less uh, 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 took whatever spies and contraband, like platinum, for instance, a hugely valuable um, uh, wartime metal only available in Colombia uh, took it into right into uh, the heart of the Reich. So uh, a very very well known uh, for those who are interested uh, spy named Intrepid uh, decided uh, that's William Stevenson uh, when he got orders uh, from London to get rid of Lati. Uh, it took took the mission in hand. Mm-hmm. He had a few options. He himself was a pilot, so he did not want to blow up the airline uh, because the, his fellow pilots uh, would be killed. It was a time when uh, civilians were often sacrificed uh, during the war for certain uh, uh uh, strategic goals, but he was a pilot uh, that was also a spy's spy. That is, he felt that the best way to get the job done was not through violence. And he ran or he founded this place called Camp X in Canada, which was a kind of huge theater, you might say, mm-hmm. where people rehearsed. Uh, some 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 very dangerous things. For instance, how they would go through torture and interrogation if they were caught. But they also uh, developed tricks uh, for uh, for for counterinsurgency, and it was a fascinating place. It had actors there. It had uh, theater people. It had uh, uh, mechanics. It had people who could uh, totally duplicate wardrobes and luggage stickers so that spies going into Europe would not be um, suspected. At any rate, uh, there's a story in the book about how he has a typewriter imitated to send a letter that is accidentally, quote unquote, (laughs) uh, found and reaches 
the president of Brazil. The president of Brazil, who did not want to get rid of Lati, all of a sudden is reading about himself described as fat and unwieldy and uh, the Brazilians described as monkeys who will perform for the one that pays them the most. That letter supposedly came from the manager of Lati to the local director. And Vargas was so furious, he himself kicked the airline out of the country. <laughs> that is brilliant. I mean, that's sneaky, but that so he literally played upon the president's ego. And we all have ego, but I imagine he thinks his letter is coming from the Italians. There's no other way for him to react, which is exactly what Intrepid wants. Psychology. Wow. That's incredible. You're right. He could have put bombs on planes. He could have tried to overthrow the government or whatever. But he, he, he I guess he, it's the path of least resistance, the smallest amount, a couple of fake papers, and suddenly someone else is doing the work for him. That is that is utterly brilliant. It was brilliant. <laughs> so I'm sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. That's uh, that's that's okay. that's that's all. It's it's uh, some of these. Uh, uh, spies and espionage agents um, were, were 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 extremely extremely clever, and uh, he was, I think, uh, absolutely legendary. So many individual men are called the pattern for James Bond, but I think he comes pretty close to it. <laughs> wow, that's yeah, that's incredible. So um, now we're, we're getting into the heart of your book, where Latin America truly contributes, eventually, in their own way, to the Allied victory. Uh, but if you could, for a moment, could you uh, focus on uh, Mexico and its active participation in World War II? Militarily, mm-hmm. uh, it, toward the end of the war, sent a the 201st Fighter Squadron called the Aztec Eagles to the Philippines. Roosevelt and the president of Mexico at the time pretty much knew that without some military participation, Mexico wouldn't have a seat at the table with the Allies after the war. Uh-huh. It was not. It was not so easy because Mexico, for some of the same reasons as Colombia, was not so favorable toward the United States. Uh, I know someone who was living, whose parents were living in Mexico at the time, and when they heard that uh, Mexico declared war, they thought it was against the United States. Oh my God! Oh my God! <laughs> so. Well, you had so many invasions of Mexico by the United States, Mm -hmm. so many border incursions. It was very difficult for any president of Mexico to get uh, Mexicans in general on board with supporting uh, supporting the U.S. But finally, the Aztec Eagles went to Texas to train and flew— uh, having been recognized by by Douglas MacArthur uh, later uh, for their efforts, um, they put a lot of Japanese troops out of action. Mm-hmm. Uh, they destroyed enemy held buildings and uh, a lot of, of of war material on the ground. And they ferried aircraft. Uh, that was a big job there because uh, the war in the Pacific was getting so spread. You had Papua New Guinea, you had the Philippines, you had all of these sites, and the aircraft had to be ferried. Um, and there were uh, several were lost, uh, and they were very little remembered after the war. Mm-hmm. But at, at least they fought and uh, faded then into history. There is a beautiful monument for them in Mexico City, but when you ask people what the monument is, they're not 
quite sure <laughs> what it's about. That's incredible. But you make a good point. I, I mean, I imagine for the president of Mexico, as well as Roosevelt, it has got to be a slippery slope about, hey, help us. Don't stay neutral. Don't help Germany. Even though we've taken so much of your territory, we've invaded countless times. I mean, it's it's got to be tricky, but I guess... And, and I know this sounds ironically weird, but the saving grace for both of those gentlemen was that I think if I remember from your book, two oil tankers, two Mexican oil tankers were sunk by the Germans and sometime in 42. And I guess that was the the excuse that the president needed to actually declare war on Germany, on Germany. Yes, that's yes, absolutely. And uh that, of course, for us, for the United States, that was not far into the war. But for the rest of the parties in the war, that was already three years in. And uh, the Mexicans by that time had been sending a lot of oil. This is before mm -hmm. the U-boats sank the tankers. The Mexicans really fueled those first victories of Hitler by sending oil to the Reich. The president at the time, uh, Lazaro Cardenas, probably the greatest president that Mexico has ever known, did not want to do it. Right. He was a he was a Democrat, but the big oil companies, Standard, Shell, Texaco, they would not stand for what he did. That is nationalized Mexican oil. He was perfectly willing to sell Mexican oil to these big companies, but they said, no, we've, you know, we've owned, quote unquote, this oil for, for decades. You can't nationalize it. They also didn't want it to have uh, to be nationalized because they had so many concessions in other Latin American countries and they didn't want the precedent uh, to, to be established. So, what happened was you had two Americans, in fact, who who made that happen. Uh, both were men shunned by these big oil companies mm -hmm. in the United States. Uh, one was none other than Fred Koch, the father of the Koch brothers. Wow. He was already um, building... Uh, plants, refinery plants. He had developed a, a, uh, a uh, an oil refining process that was more economical than what had gone before and allowed the sort of smaller companies to compete. And so he was uh, sued by the big companies and he went to the Soviet Union and started building the refineries for Stalin. Uh, but he didn't much like uh, Stalin and his purges, even some of Koch's own own associates were purged, and he became a huge fan of the fascist countries. At the same time, you had um, a uh, man named uh, William Davis, uh, called the Mystery Man of uh, World War II for his oil maneuverings, who was also shunned by the big companies and decided to go to sell oil in Germany and asked Koch to build a refinery for him in Hamburg. And that refinery was one of the few that could process the kind of um, fuel that the, the Luftwaffe needed, mm -hmm. the, the uh, German Air Force. And Davis uh, bought the Mexican oil when the big companies wouldn't. Wow. So he in fact, ran it to Germany and to Italy. That, that's incredible because before I got hold of your book, I knew that the Germans had a, had a um, as far as weapons, war material, uh, advantage over the Allies because they started rearming re um, much earlier and so the Allies have to catch up. But I did not truly appreciate the actual oil reserves that Hitler had going into Poland and into France the, um, you know, the next year because – Mexico's trying to sell its oil to the United States, I guess maybe to, to Britain as well. They're saying no. They've got to do something with this oil. So Davis comes along and he goes, I can sell it. It might not 
be the customer you want, but I can make money for your country. And that's all the president is trying to do is, you know, keep his economy going and create jobs for his people. So that I guess the arrogance of the American oil companies was uh, was Germany's gain. Right. And it was rather duplistic because Standard and Texaco were also under the table uh, selling oil to the Reich, especially very early. Okay, so um, so so the Germans and the Italians are getting their oil um, from Mexico because they have no other place to, to go with it. So again, like you said, they get a huge uh, head start. And again, that just had to be a real headache for FDR. I mean, he's probably, I'm guessing, putting pressure on these oil companies in America to relent. But I guess they, I guess they still want to punish Mexico for nationalizing the resources there. Should not only to punish them, but also to keep other countries from saying, well, hey, that's not such a bad idea. It's it's under our soil. Why shouldn't we get a little bit more benefit for our own national programs? So the precedent was one that they didn't want to, uh, to have established. Roosevelt himself didn't, didn't push them too much at first, but eventually he was getting tired of it. It was rather unpatriotic, sure. uh, it seemed, with the war coming. Support for this podcast comes from CDW and Dell Technologies. At CDWG, we get that migrating your agency to a hyper-converged infrastructure is challenging. Like me switching to decaf. Gotta do it, don't wanna do it, but gotta do it. Whoa, slow down, friend. CDWG's experts can help simplify your transition from legacy to hyper-converged infrastructure with Dell Technologies solutions that offer speed and agility. Do it, do it. Have you done it? Is it done yet? Why isn't it done yet? IT orchestration by CDWG. People who get it. Find out more at cdwg.com slash Tech. Support for this podcast comes from State Farm. With surprisingly great rates, State Farm is the real deal when it comes to home and car insurance. State Farm agents are always ready to help you personalize your insurance plan so you can create a policy that fits your needs. You can manage your coverage, pay your bill, or even file a claim right from your phone with the State Farm mobile app. And you can always call one of the State Farm agents in neighborhoods across the country. Get a great rate without sacrificing great service. When you want the real deal, like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Okay, so yeah, absolutely. So um, so we've got the oil from Mexico, but because this is the first big modern war in that sense. We also have to talk about the significance of rubber, which also plays into Latin America. So if you could, if you could tell us a little bit about the Latin rubber and how it affects uh, World War II. Yes, well, I had no idea about how important <laughs> rubber would be in a war. Yeah. And I started looking at the list of materials that are uh, that, that have rubber parts, mm. and it's you, you couldn't wage a war without rubber uh, on aircraft, on ships, um, in hospitals, uh, every place it's absolutely needed. And even synthetic rubber, which, by the way, the United States didn't have wow. uh, at first. It did not have it. Um, Germany had, uh, for instance, uh, 70,000 tons of synthetic rubber a year to, uh, to the United States is uh, 8,000 tons mm. of synthetic rubber. But even synthetic rubber uh, needs a portion of natural rubber in it mm-hmm. uh, to make products. So war was, uh, I'm sorry, so rubber was very important. And there had been rubber campaigns in the Amazon historically. But now the U.S. even developed something called Plan Rubber, which was a plan to take that geographical area, northeastern Brazil, if something couldn't be done, both about the rubber and to get bases in that hump of Brazil. Wow. It's kind of, if, if you look at Brazil, it's got a uh, fist plunging into the Atlantic, mm-hmm. only 1,800 miles from uh, 
Dakar from North Africa. It's just a little jump. And so once uh, the uh, fascists were controlling uh, North Africa, uh, people were extremely worried that there would be a jump over to Brazil, uh, which would be bad for bad for the allies. And this is before the U.S., of course, went into the war. Um, but you had dozens and dozens of meetings of the top commanders, and uh, almost all of them uh, had Latin America on the agenda as war was getting closer. Rubber was finally harvested by about 50,000 men called rubber soldiers. Mm -hmm. They made it a a military-type campaign. And at that time, there was a drought not far from the Amazon, and people were unemployed. So they readily, very often, went to the Amazon. But the, the... the cost was very, very high for this U.S.-Brazilian rubber campaign. Of those 51,000 people, uh, 30,000 died. Wow. They died from malaria, yellow fever, Chagas disease, from uh, serpents, scorpion stings, jaguars, or they fell into rivers and were eaten by piranhas. Uh, it was a terrible cost in human lives. Uh, but rubber was absolutely essential. Uh, remember that the Japanese had uh, invaded Malaysia and other uh, places where the U.S. and Britain were getting their supplies. And so that was cut off. They had to look to places like like Latin America. Um Brazil was important for for a lot of other things, the, the, for manganese, uh, which made aluminum for planes, for uh, high grade, the kind of high-grade crystal that you could use for optical glass, uh, for industrial diamonds that were needed to, for, uh, for um, uh, machines, you know, to, for machine cutting. Um, but, but the rubber campaign was one that cost, uh, cost human lives. That's incredible. Yeah, I had no idea, again, before I read your book, that the United States actually, you know, had to talk about seriously maybe occupying, capturing, taking uh, northeastern Brazil, one uh, for things like uh, the rubber for bases and things like that. But you also have to do it in case you're, I guess, in case your enemy is thinking about it, you have to get there first. So Brazil was uh, very, very important. And um, I I think it's... um, January of 42, where Brazil, fortunately for the Allies, drops their neutrality and signs the Washington Accords. So we're going to have bases there. We're going to get access to the rubber. But you're absolutely right. The people that had to go get it, I mean, they just suffered uh, by the tens of thousands, I guess, for the war effort, which is important. But again, you hate to think of all those people being sacrificed for having to collect this resource. Well, absolutely. I mean, meanwhile, the people in the United States, they thought they were suffering, but it, it wasn't too bad. But there were rubber drives. Uh, people were asked to turn in raincoats and galoshes, mm. and uh, they uh, lowered the speed limits to save tires. Uh, they had uh, uh, advertising that said, uh, when you drive alone, you drive with Hitler. Right. So it was it was the beginning of carpooling to save, uh, not only to save oil, but to save rubber, too. But uh, it, it, that was a cost, but it was a different kind of cost. Right. And you made the point in your book that because of the Amazon uh, rubber, that the United States had enough of it to get through until 1944 when when they could finally make enough synthetic rubber. But again, the, for those people that uh, lost their lives, uh, just absolutely tragic. And right. and and because we're talking about World War II, and again, this was something I totally had no idea about the Jewish experience 
in World War II was was pretty pretty horrific. But if you think about it, I mean, they're in Catholic countries. Um, they, you know, because of their religion, I guess they look different. Maybe they act different. But again, there, there's a certain segment of people, the Jews, to some degree, not assimilating. And I guess that's going to affect them. But I don't think I truly appreciated how long some of them had been there, you know, for generations, because again, they're looking for to make a living and to go to a place that will, will take them in and, and let them get on with their lives. Well, it's important to remember that 1492, which is when Columbus sailed the ocean blue, as we, <laughs> as we remember, that was the same year that Spain ejected the Jews from uh, uh, and the Muslims from from Spain. Mm-hmm. That was when Ferdinand and Isabella ejected the Jews. And some Jews went to the Americas right on Columbus's ship. In fact, the first uh, person to actually sight land uh, was uh, one of the sailors was was Jewish. Uh, they were conversos. Uh, that is, they had um, converted for um, for obvious reasons, um, and nevertheless, uh, m- many times uh, kept to their Jewish uh, faith and culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, they did have the Inquisition in Latin America, uh, the uh, the very punishing uh, Catholic Church uh, courts, not as many. People were killed in the Americas. Right. They were not only Jews. Some of them were were Indians, for instance, or even black slaves that uh, uh, insisted on keeping their own religion. But uh, like the the Holocaust, no matter who else was killed, it was aimed at Jews. Mm. And. Jews were suspected by, but but nevertheless, um, when the Spanish uh, countries and certainly uh, Portugal were independent, became independent in the 19th century mm-hmm. from from Europe, uh, Jews were not persecuted in in Latin America um, as much as. They started to be suspected of being communists or uh, somehow unassimilable, undesirables during the Second World War. Because uh, you were saying in your book that, um, yeah, as far as Berlin is concerned, you know, all the Germans in um, Argentina, wherever, they better be loyal because it's expected of them. But there were, I guess, Nazi groups, Nazi newspapers or, or whatever. And so they could spread their message of persecuting these people, even though they're they're not in Europe, they're not in the Third Reich technically. Oh, absolutely! In fact, uh, uh, <laughs> the the only uh, criticism of Walt Disney's group that went down there to be goodwill ambassadors was that they had Jews among them. The uh, and this is from Nazi newspaper in in Berlin. No, that uh, and in fact I've sat in archives looking through the newspapers from the time, and it was it's appalling how uh, cartoons uh, maligning Jews or making fun of Jews are. Are, are, are very plentiful. And these are in mainline newspapers. But with the um, pro-fascist newspapers, of course, they uh, campaigned against Jews. Uh, and there were strong Jewish communities in southern Brazil, in Argentina, in Mexico. Uh, nevertheless, uh, it was very difficult during the Second World War. And, and one of the most difficult things was um, that they could not know. They didn't know what was happening to their families back home. Uh-huh. The information was so scattered and the very few uh, Jews who immigrated, who were able to be accepted into the Latin countries during that period, 
told horrific stories, but even many of them didn't have the whole picture. So there was a, there was powerful angst that affected the Jewish communities during that period. Now, there were, despite the 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 almost the prohibition of admitting Jews during the war, even though they were refugees, mm-hmm. which, by the way, that pattern was uh, often done in uh, imitation of U.S. policy, right. uh, that which we had that policy, um, and uh, Latin countries could easily say, which some did, look, if the United States isn't going to do it, I don't see, you know, why we should. Um, but there were certain Latin diplomats who were schindlers in their way in Europe. Uh, a Salvadoran diplomat called Jose Castellanos, who was in Geneva and uh, manufactured untold thousands of Salvadoran passports for refugees to give them a way out of uh uh, of the horrors there that they were experiencing. Uh, there was a Mexican named um, Gilberto Bosques who took some Mexican property, that is um, uh, a, a diplomatic, uh, uh, I think it was a sort of a garden and a house in Marseille, and made it a refuge for all of these refugees. And he himself and the uh, staff at the uh, Mexican consulate there for their trouble were captured and um, held by the Germans for a while. Wow. So there was uh, there was bravery in the midst of all this horror. Okay, so um, now I have to say that when I was reading your book, the item that shook me up the most, um, and there were a lot of things that that I was in, um, incredulous about, was but it was Crystal City and the prisoner exchange program. Uh, if you could tell us a little bit about that and the experiences of some of the families that were sent there. Crystal City was a concentration camp in Texas, not far from the Mexican border, uh, to which Latin American residents and citizens uh, were brought, having been kidnapped in Peru and several other countries as hostages to be used for an exchange program. The program was called Quiet Passages. It was secret, mm-hmm. and it was looking for individuals that could be exchanged for American civilians who were caught behind enemy lines. Mm. Now, there were over 2,000 Japanese Peruvians, for instance, taken. Often the men would be taken first and kept down in the holds of the ships, brought to Panama, where they would be uh, forced to labor, which, by the way, is against the Geneva Conventions, right. uh, building uh, U.S. Um, military camps, and then taken on to camps in the United States where um, eventually the families would join them, but sometimes entire families were taken. Uh, when I was looking, for, I'm a journalist, I'm not an historian, mm-hmm. so I wanted to talk to some people who had actually experienced this. I mean, I know an historian might well want to do that too, but uh, that was my first thought. And um, I found individuals who had been taken to Crystal City had spent some of their earliest years surrounded by barbed wire, uh, men with uh, long guns, uh, saw their parents uh, helpless uh, with them, 
and um, still remember it. Uh, it w- uh, one gentleman I got on the phone, and we started talking about where we lived, and it turns out he lived one block from me. Wow. So he and two of his brothers were the only survivors of his family of, let's see, there were eight uh, came over and told me all the details of their lives in Peru. They were baptized Catholics, had Spanish names, and uh, one of them even told me about going to see a movie in Lima about Tojo, where Tojo was uh, made fun of. And he came home and he talked about it, and he didn't. It didn't hurt his feelings at all because he was a Peruvian kid, right. even though he was. Dead. Japanese uh, uh, looking, and his parents are Japanese. And um, the witness of these individuals is is just harrowing to hear what happened to them. Now, as we know, 120,000 Japanese Americans were incarcerated during the war, mm-hmm. but they could not be used. They, they, the Washington did not dare use them to trade for hostages, right. but they apparently thought that uh, Latin Americans would be fair game. That's incredible. So I guess at the time of Pearl Harbor, when the war comes in the Pacific, um, there's a lot of Americans who didn't know specifically that war was coming, so they're trapped behind lines. And so I guess the U.S. government has this secret program to come up with bodies, even though, like you said, they are Peruvians, they just happen to be of Japanese descent, uh, and they're going to exchange them, send them to Japan, get their people back. And of course, these people have never been to Japan. They don't know where to go. They don't have any place to go. I imagine it was horrific for, for everybody involved, but I was just surprised that this was done on American soil. Right. Well, I mean, some of them, of course, were had been born in Japan, ah. but they had but they hadn't been there. For instance, some of the parents hadn't been there for, I don't know, 20, 30 years. Mm-hmm. And they had no intention of ever going back, just like uh, just like immigrants to the United States come and say, well, this is going to be where my life is. And they have their children there and they start their schools there. And um, they have, uh, I mean, some of these people did not speak Japanese, that's for sure. (laughs) And um, they learned their first Japanese in the concentration camp. That's incredible. Um, I do have to ask you, I know we're getting kind of long on time, but, and this is going to be hard for a lot of Americans, but I had no idea about Walt Disney's part in the propaganda during the war. Could you please tell us about some of his exploits in, uh, in Latin America? Right. Well, Walt Disney was one of the goodwill ambassadors for Nelson Rockefeller. What we have to understand is that propaganda, uh, as in any war, is a war within the war. And in in Latin America, the um, fascists were ahead of the game early on. Uh, Goebbels was head of the the Reich Ministry of Public Enlightenment and Propaganda and distributed articles, films uh, all over Latin America. They had the the Bayer Company, the German pharmaceutical company, had little sound trucks where they went around to the villages and and, uh, showed propaganda films. And... um, Nelson Rockefeller said, you know, I mean, I've even been in archives where I saw articles by Adolf Hitler. I mean, that was the byline, clearly distributed by Goebbels uh, to, you know, say, you know, my vision by Adolf Hitler. So Rockefeller, whose company had a lot of business in Latin America and who personally was very affectionate toward Latin America, he tried to speak Spanish, Mm -hmm. uh, saw the writing on the wall and decided that uh, a propaganda, especially with the elites, was extremely important to counteract this. And at first they worked on influencing the elites, and then they started uh, looking at the general public. Whom did everybody know? Mickey Mouse. (laughs) So, so, uh, you know, along with Errol Flynn and Rita Hayworth and Waldo Frank and Aaron Copeland, he invited 
Walt Disney down to be a goodwill ambassador. Walt Disney and his crew, they called themselves El Grupo, uh, made uh, wonderfully attractive films that um, were meant to show Latin Americans as like us in the in the um, uh, three caballeros, the three uh, um, uh, buddies. They sing a song about we're three gay caballeros, we're birds of a feather. In other words, we're all very much alike. Uh, now, a lot of the stereotypes were still there. But there was uh, no roughness about Latin Americans. Um, you know, new films that Rockefeller supported tried to break with that Hollywood pulp tradition of featuring um, rough Hispanic characters in backwaters. Mm -hmm. They were sending the message that Latin Americans are worthy allies in the coming war. And Walt Disney, in fact, made numbers of documentaries, training films. He um, did a huge amount of work for the entire duration of the war and didn't take a penny wow. for it. Unlike some of the other big companies, you know, the Ford company, the uh, a lot of U.S. businesses naturally made a lot of money during the war. And um, uh, Disney didn't didn't charge for these kind of training films and everything but he he benefited tremendously these photos I, i'm sorry these films were very popular and they also uh had an effect on disney after um this experience this very deep experience with new kinds of color uh new kinds of of um uh, almost surrealism and bold graphics came into the Disney um, uh, uh, oeuvre, you might say, to the Disney um, kind of, um, of of look. Mm -hmm. And so Latin America had a big effect on on what generations have seen as as Disney films. You see, Disney stood for American values. Right. He wasn't overly political. And Mickey Mouse was loved by everybody. Goebbels even gave Hitler a gift once of 13 Mickey Mouse films for a birthday. And, and, and they said they were very pleased with them. So it was, it was a smart move on Rockefeller's part to invite Walt Disney to Latin America. So we've we've spoken of uh, uh, resources. We've sp spoken of the hearts and minds of the people. And there's been some actual fighting as far as the uh, as far as Mexico with their pilots. But to end on a high note, and um, as far as um, Latin America really contributing, not that the Mexican pilots didn't, but really getting in there and, and helping to bring about the end of the Axis powers. Uh, if you could talk about, um, I think it's the uh, the smoking cobras. Uh, of Brazil. So again, I just thought what they did was amazing, their bravery and their courage. And they had to start, I guess, so far behind with either language barriers or training or, or maybe not being taken seriously. But uh, please tell us about the Smoking Cobras and some of their accomplishments. Yes. Um, the Brazilians uh, who know about the smoking cobras are fascinated by them. Mm. And uh, when they heard that I was going to call my book the Tango War, they said, no, call it the Samba War. <laughs> <laughs> it's not the point. The 25,000 Brazilians went to work, fight, die with the Allies to take the parts of Italy which were in German hands mm -hmm. after D-Day. Many of the Allied troops were taken off for the invasion of France. Uh. Yet, yet Italy was not firmly in Allied hands. So the smoking cobras, oh, by the way, where did they get their name? Yeah. Hitler was reputed to have once said, oh, right. The Brazilians will fight when the snake smokes. <laughs> <laughs> and you see, Brazil was 
pro-fascist early in the war. So he was dismissing them as not fighting, let alone for the Allies. So when it came time to choose a patch, they were already in Italy, and they said, hey, we're the smoking cobras. (laughs) And they fought alongside the Buffalo soldiers, the black um, Americans. Uh, They fought... Uh, against the partisan, I'm sorry, they fought alongside the partisans, mm-hmm. the Italian, uh, the Italians who fought against Mussolini's troops, and they liberated uh, towns of all through Tuscany up up until um, the north. They even breached the Gothic line, which is that impregnable meant it was it was uh built by Kesselring to be impregnable 180 miles long 10 miles deep watchtowers tank traps uh they didn't start out very well you had Brazilians that had never been behind the wheel of a car driving these huge trucks I mean they had more people lost from uh, traffic accidents at the beginning, or car accidents, wow. uh, jeep accidents, than they did from uh, from dying in the field. Um, but eventually, they were trained on the U.S. weapons. They became a band of brothers. They uh, were trained really in the field. Mm-hmm. And they they were hurled against these um, uh, these goals like Monte Castello, which. Uh, uh, took them five attacks over four months wow. to conquer. And um, they ended, their last action was just a few days uh, before the end of the war. Mm-hmm. They ended from kind of fumbling and losing right at the first uh, to capturing 14,000 soldiers, three generals, the entire 148th Division of the German Army. That's incredible. Uh, now, you were saying earlier that Me- the president of Mexico and FDR knew that um, if Mexican troops didn't do something uh, in the war, um, they wouldn't be able to sit at the table afterwards. But I didn't get the sense that's what the the Cobras are about or what Bru- Brazil was about. I-, I have a feeling I got the sense that they were really in it to uh, help end the war and to and to defeat the fascists, even though they'd started out like you said, pro-fascist at the beginning of the war? I would say that the rank and file uh, was all out against the fascists. And by the way, they included 800 German Brazilians. Wow. They were some of the toughest fighters and they came from the south of Brazil and enlisted and fought like everybody else. And some of the best-known names, like Max Wolf, were, were German, who, who died a few days before the war was over, uh, were German-Brazilians. Uh, later, some of their officers took part in the U.S.-supported coup of the 60s uh, when it became pretty difficult to live in uh, in uh, it became rather repressive to live in in Brazil so some of the officers of the smoking cobras supported that coup the rank and file were rather neglected mm-hmm. remember they were over there fighting for democracy and at home, they had a dictatorship, and by the 60s, they had a repressive authoritarian government. Right. So they weren't even allowed to um, make a veterans organization well in, until well into the 70s, wow. because people want to be reminded of these men who fought for democracy. That's incredible. And, I, and I'm glad you brought that up because 
we've only done we've you and I've only talked about what maybe seventy percent of the book or whatever. There's other chapters uh, that everybody should be certainly excited to uh, to check out. I I finished reading the book, but I just wanted to leave something for the for the listeners. But you go on and you talk about um, Hoover's FBI versus the the German Abwehr, the uh, their uh, their intelligence. Uh, uh, organization. You talk about the rat lines, the thousands of Nazis like um, uh, Adolf Eichmann, Joseph Magella, uh, the Angel of Death, who was at Auschwitz. You talk about Edward Roshman, the Butcher of Riga. You talk about all these people that were able to get away to Latin America and the very complicated relationship, I guess, the Catholic Church and or participation the Catholic Church had in that. So we've we've only touched on some of this. You've got elements of the Cold War, you've got the rat line, um, and you've got, um, again, the, and you go back a little bit and you talk about the Vatican's, uh, you know, curious relationship with Hitler and Mussolini. So again, there's a lot more to this book than what we've gone over. But if you truly do not have a sense of Latin America's participation in World War II. This book will answer so many questions and give you so many, uh, so, so much new information and other avenues to discuss. And Mary Jo, I just want to thank you. I enjoyed reading this book very much, and I can't wait to uh, to use it uh, on, on, on upcoming shows, of which I will give you credit. I promise. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed this. Absolutely. So everybody, please check it out. The Tango War, the struggle for the hearts, minds, and riches of Latin America during World War II. And now a game of commercial chicken brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. And now a game of Commercial Chicken, brought to you by Progressive, where we see how long Flo can go without talking about insurance. Ready? Go. So the... The weather is just all over the place lately, right? One day it's hot, and the next day it's uh, it's windy for a while. It's like, make up your mind already. Drivers who switch to Progressive can save big. Okay, you win. We can't help but save customers money. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.